At Scribble, we're proud to keep the free audiobook by podcast tradition going strong. But, of course, the free model only works as long as you sometimes swing by Scribble.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-L dot com. And support our authors by also purchasing their titles in ebook or higher quality ad-free audiobook form. Scribble pays authors at the same rate or better than other outlets, so there's no better place to show your support for your favorite author than by buying your next book from Scribble. That's S-C-R-I-B-L dot com. is good. Khalil Gibran. Do you remember Mark Lalo from high school? Francine Miller looked up at Mary Ellen, who was behind the cashier's counter, checking her groceries out at the supermarket. Her stomach dropped. She was transported to the memories of her high school days almost 20 years ago. For an instant, she wore the memories like a warm coat, comforting yet musty and foggy through years of self-analysis. It was like those disturbing teenage years when she saw almost everything cascade around her were fond times to be cherished. What used to be a mark of pain and regret was now significant to her life perhaps even crucial to her mental health. All that came to her because Mary Ellen mentioned her ex-boyfriend's name. Yeah, she said, trying to look as if she was searching a mental catalog of people who were just on the edge of worth in neural real estate. Of course, yeah, I remember him. We dated in high school. If Mary Ellen thought it ridiculous that Francine just pushed aside the memory of him, she didn't lean on. Since she had actually spent the better part of her formative years pining for Mark Lalo, his good looks, and his fortune, she was appreciative of that particular free pass, because when she finally got him, her teenage world fell apart. He's here in town for the reading of the will. Mary Ellen scanned a box of tampons, twice because the first time the machine made a grumpy buzz instead of beeping happily. I never thought he'd come back from New York, but I guess Ann Lalo did treat him right after all. She continued the charade. You know how these things are. The lawyers make you show up in person if you want any of the money. At Mary Ellen's request, she swiped her ATM card and punched the green OK button. That was another $43.78 zapped from her checking account. The balance, she guessed, was dangerously close to zero by now. Approved marched across the LED screen. A relief, or better, a reprieve. Guess he'd be staying at Fred's place in town here, huh? No, Mary Ellen said. Uncle Pete says he's staying out at his place off Route 24. The motel Pete Hammond ran off of Route 24 was a traveler's motel, complete with 1970s wallpaper and bad reprints. It was a perfect canvas for some killer to redecorate in patches of blood of local girl red. 
there was a fine line between kitsch and creepy, and that place leaned too much in the wrong direction for Francine. She suspected Mary Ellen knew the reputation her old uncle's motel carried. Why there? It's so far out of town, and with the rain, she searched for reasons he'd want to stay so far out of town. The first thing that popped in her head was that he'd want to make a quick getaway. The second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth reasons all had to do with avoiding her. I guess he doesn't want everyone to know he's here, Mary Ellen shrugged. Her eyes met Francine's, and she saw the knowing look in them. They weren't malevolent at all, and Francine regretted pretending that it didn't matter. I thought you'd want to know. Thanks, she replied, for both the grocery items and the information. Gossip in the supermarket checkout line, Francine thought on her way out. Where else? She loaded her bags of groceries into her 85 Saab 900 Turbo, trying to avoid the rain under the heavy hatchback. She inherited the car from her brother when he flew the coupe and went west. Before that, Tim had restored the Saab to mint condition from the nicely purring 16-valve dual overhead cam engine to the leather seats and nice click to the AC button. The only upgrade besides parts was the CD radio with 10-disc changer in the trunk and Alpine speakers. He bestowed the gift to her only days before packing up and leaving with his new girlfriend and her suspiciously ubiquitous best friend. The girls were graduates of community college looking to shake the dust of this upstate town and partake of the abandon of whatever prospect in California sucked them in first. She was at the same time jealous of and angry with Tim. Mark Lalo disappeared years before Tim decided to split. He took off for college and never came back. He became a lawyer down in the city and made good of himself in true Lalo fashion. Unlike most Lalos, Mark didn't come back to Canyon Park looking to feed from the table of the industrial machine that Abraham Lalo put into motion over a hundred years ago. He stayed away and his name faded except with those of his contemporaries who were left behind. Contemporaries like Mary Ellen and Francine who received second-hand reports of his doings from older relatives who themselves overheard those same reports from Ann Lalo while lunching in town or buying gasoline. Gregory Bradley, the mobile station owner, used to pry incessantly, and for a top-off of fluids and windshield wash, Anne would spill her family secrets and happenings to him while he worked. Greg looked slightly like Clint Eastwood and spoke like a young Gregory Peck. He also dressed like an old-fashioned gas station attendant in blue work pants and t-shirt with a rag hanging out of the baggy pocket. His cap crumpled in just the right places. He wiped his hands all the time when he spoke as if he were about to adjust your timing. As far as Francine was concerned, Anne Lalo ran hot and cold. Anne reserved a little courtesy for her since she was the guardian of arts and letters in town and kept the shelves stocked with classic novels from an era only Anne ever bothered to visit. Except Francine, who read voraciously of any genre, era, or style. Those times when Anne recognized a book Francine was reading, she spared a few moments for friendly and intellectual conversation. That's when the world stopped turning and everything outside froze in place. Usually when Francine was done with the book, Anne would check it out the next visit. Francine thought it an unspoken compliment. Anne had that ability to make everything but herself important when she wanted to. Francine found that after she died, she had only thoughts of those tender times forming a connection on a scholarly level and forgot what a cold, judgmental bitch she was most others. Of course, the Lalo lawyers also bestowed her library with a conditional, if not meager, grant as per Anne Lalo's last wishes. The money was only to be spent on gothic novels, as was Anne's interest. She had her own version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, yet she requested the library have a copy on the shelf. Any grant to the library was welcome, no matter what the conditions, although Francine suspected the roof could use some repair, especially since the rain started a month ago. She was worried that the few moist spots would turn into leaks if they weren't soon fixed. She'd have to give George Zareski a call, 
see if she could haggle a price and hide the funds in new acquisitions. On the way through town, she noticed that there was only a smattering of people braving the rain that day. A few teenagers strolled by. From the look of them, they were using the rain as an excuse to act wild. They kicked at puddles and pushed each other around, walking bravely on both sidewalks and the street. There was a surreal nakedness about the town, kept empty by the weather, that made people just a little out of sorts. She remembered just that morning passing by Heron and Garden Streets, and there was a man standing on top of a crate reading aloud from a Bible. That seemed odd in this usually disheartened town. There were probably some who looked to the Bible for answers to the divine-like stretches of rain, but generally people kept to their own side of the religious fence. The Catholics never bothered the Episcopalians, the two major denominations, and neither of them bothered with anybody else who didn't attend church on Sunday, except for Reverend Newton, who bothered everyone about everything, especially when running for mayor. Francine never attended church anymore, except on Christmas and Easter or some special occasion, but since she felt guilty about it, she deemed the guilt good enough to make up for about 50% of the time she was absent. Her mother still went to see Reverend Newton regularly and prayed for her, so that might make up for another 20 or 30%. She figured one day she'd marry, have kids, and then spend the rest of her life as an occasional visitor to make up the rest. She pulled her sob up to the library. The rain was so heavy that it looked to be turning her windshield liquid before her eyes. She noticed the strangeness of a car parked in front on a Saturday afternoon. Most times, nobody waited for her to open unless it was exam time and the teens needed a place to study, do research for term papers, or make out between the stacks. Her radio's display read 1231. She never opened before 1 o'clock on Saturday. Even then, few people came by except Anne Lalo, and although it would be interesting in a gothic sort of way, she didn't expect to see Anne in the library ever again. The thought made her feel sad instead of indifferent, as she expected. As the wipers squeegeed the rain, she finally recognized the car. What she originally thought was a ski rack turned out to be an assembly of lights. Detective Carlton stood under the small overhang at the entrance, wrapped in a gray poncho and boots. He hunched from the rain and stamped his feet in anticipation of Francine letting him into the warmth of the library. She turned off the sob, grabbed the two grocery bags from the back seat, ran to the covering, and unlocked the thick paneled door. Inside, Detective Carlton mumbled his thanks, and Francine offered to make him a hot cup of something as she set the bags down behind the finished maple countertop. The round edges were decorated with spirals hand-carved into waves. On top, the woodcuts were of an angular pattern that sectioned off the waves from the smooth working surface. The flow of dark grain ran through the wood. It was a beautiful counter. The interior had that cozy, rustic Adirondack feel, down to the big stacked stone fireplace on the far wall. I'll take my coffee black, Detective Carlton said as he sat in one of the four unmatched couches set in a square around an enormous low table intended for casual reading or research. Mostly, Francine used the area to entertain and relax with a classic. She brought over two heavy, handmade mugs filled with black coffee and sat opposite the detective. She smiled thinly and asked, What can I help you find, Mr. Carlton? The detective drank from his coffee and placed it down on a Life magazine. This weather is driving me crazy. How about you? I'm surviving. She looked around at the stack surrounding her in an obvious way. I have this to keep me busy, and I meditate so. So you don't let it get to you, he asked. Francine felt the spotlight click on in her mind and the sweat beads form on her brow. He was grilling her. He was investigating. Forgivable, since that was his job, but Francine always preferred directness to stealth. Can I help you with something, detective? she asked again. This time her voice was an octave higher, as if to say, cut the bullshit. He smiled and lifted his coffee and said, I want to talk to you about Anne Lalo. Why? 
She's dead. So I heard, Francine said. She was murdered. Francine thought about that. That was not public knowledge, and it must have been important for her to know if he brought it up. She was either a suspect or knew something he wanted to know about Anne from all her visits to the library. I didn't know that, she said, curious and apologetic of her initial snippiness. No one does. He paused to think. Except me, the mayor, the coroner, and the Lalos. Some of them, at least. Does Mark know? I don't know. He only just arrived in town, but I don't think he spoke with anyone yet. He sipped his coffee. Why? He was an old high school friend. The detective suddenly looked nervous. If you see him, don't let on. This isn't for the public. It could be embarrassing that you know before he does. She sat back and thought about Mark coming into town and hearing for the first time that his aunt, who raised him since his parents' death, was murdered. She guessed the prospect of inheritance would soften the blow a little. Was he even that shallow? She didn't remember. It then occurred to her that Mark would probably be distraught over Anne's death, more so because it was murder. I'm telling you this because this isn't the first murder in town. Francine sighed. I know that, she said. This isn't exactly Little House on the Prairie. We've had murders here, especially after the downturn in industry and the... Those were mostly suicides, he said, interrupting her, which was a good thing, since she had the habit of going on about details no one ever knew or cared about. What about the Indian... I don't mean ever in the history of town, he said. I meant in the last few weeks. Francine was truly shocked. It, it wasn't in the newspaper. How many? It wasn't in the paper because of the nature of the murders. We didn't want to alarm anyone, but they look like serial-type killings. You're kidding. Here in Canyon Park, she said, sounding more amused by the fact than she anticipated. We're not sure yet because we haven't put a connection to each of the people. You have uh, lots of information here, obviously, and I thought you might find something familiar about the places they were murdered and the bodies dumped. I was hoping you had some old maps or something. I don't know. It's probably a drifter or a hired hand who got itchy or something, but I can't put it past me that it might be someone in town. He shook his head. Francine saw his frustration. It smoothed her usual sarcasm. She wondered how the secret could have been kept from leaking out, especially in this small place. A local? Don't know, kid. Just one of those hunches brought on by an acute case of liberalism. The last part didn't make sense to her. What does that mean? A friend of mine asked me to open my mind. Good advice. If I can help you, sure, I'll do whatever I can, she said. It's just that... The detective stopped and sipped his coffee. I just think there's something else. Again, he cut himself short. What is it, she asked. Crazy thoughts. Your friend again? Yeah, he said, drinking more coffee. I guess this kind of shit is pretty spooky sometimes, she said. I try to find balance by meditating. He smiled as if he had just gotten a joke. Yeah, I'll try it. For now, uh, what do you have on the uh, family manor Anne lived in, the mill museum, and the wooded area by the bridge over the White River just to the east of Cover Bridge Road? You know the one they rebuilt years back? I'll look for something. We have some old maps and records in the cellar. I'll do some research today and let you know what I find out. He drained his cup, put it squarely over the face of some starving little boy looking out from the front pages of life. He seemed to contemplate the act and then stood up. Thanks, he said. Call me at the station if you find anything. They shook hands and he walked to the door. The hiss of rain intruded on the snug interior. Francine thought she should say something as he left. Disclose a piece of information that was integral to the case. She said, Did you know that Ann Lala would come in here a lot before, you know, before she was killed? Detective Colton stopped at the doorway and let the hiss linger. No, I didn't know that. Is that important, she asked. Not really, he said, and then walked out.
have been listening to Erosion by Lon S. Cohen. To find out more, please visit www.coincide.blogspot.com. This patio book is a production of Zilco Studios. <laughs> this production is a production. <laughs>